sifter.com.au. G'day and welcome to Drop Rate by Sifter. Drop Rate is Sifter's review podcast packed with thoughts and feelings about the newest video games, giving you insights from some of the best people in games media. I'm Chris Button, and today we're visiting the dark place in Alan Wake 2, alongside James O'Connor and Fergus Halliday. Before we get into the discussion, here are the top stories featured on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast. Hi, I'm Kyle Paletto. And I'm Gianni DiGiovanni. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 5th of May. Escape from Tarkov developers relent, allowing access to PvE mode for players who bought an all-DLC bundle, but not before saying, sorry, you're mad. Solo-developed Manor Lords and indie city builder break sales and Steam records. Take-Two shuts down studios behind Kerbal Space Program and Oli Oli World. And we wrap all the cool things announced at ID at Xbox. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. You're listening to Drop Rate by Sifter. Visit us on sifter.com.au. Now, Fergus, Alan Wake 2, it's it's much more than just a sequel to a video game from over a decade ago. How would you explain all of these threads that come together and make Alan Wake 2? What's the concept here? Oh, where to begin? Where to begin? Um, well, so, like you said, the, the simplest version is it's in the name Alan Wake 2. It continues the story of Alan Wake 1. But if you dig a little bit below that sort of surface layer... It's a weird mishmash of meta stuff that Remedy has kind of not been building towards, I think, deliberately for the last like 20 years, but they're in a weird position where they're probably the only developer who could do something this bizarre and kind of get away with it. Um, So obviously you're continuing the story of Alan Wake uh, in Alan Wake 2, but also it's now weaving in threads and characters and stuff from Control, which released a few years ago. Uh, They've confirmed these two series are in the same universe, so there's crossover there. And then on top of that, Uh, They also are weaving in a little bit of Max Payne on the side in a weird sort of roundabout way. Uh, Remedy developed Max Payne 1 and Max Payne 2 way back in the day, uh, but they don't actually own the rights to the character. So the way they're kind of getting around that is that Alan Wake's novels are about a uh, hard-boiled pulp detective called Alex Casey, who is in the live-action segments of Alan Wake 2, played by Sam Lake, who was the original face model for Max Payne way back in the day. So they've kind of got him... Uh, and the voice actor for Max Payne reprising their roles as a sort of Max Payne stand-in, uh, and then Sean Ashmore from Quantum Breaks in the mix. It's like all of the all of the classic Remedy characters are sort of making their way together. So the the setup is kind of uh, simple by picking up thirteen or so la- years later, after the end of the first game, uh, which had a big cliffhanger ending, uh, and you're initially playing as a FBI detective, Saga Anderson, who's uh, arriving in the small, sleepy town of Bright Falls. Uh, where Alan Wake originally disappeared and the events of the first game took place uh, after a FBI agent who is missing, presumed dead, uh, sort of turns up f- crawling out of the lake in the first level of the game. 
Uh, and then as you're a detective, you're kind of interviewing witnesses, gathering evidence, and sort of constructing a like a metaphorical web of clues to sort of help you solve the mystery. And then, yeah, and then you go from there. And James, this is something you mentioned in your review on Kotaku Australia, is that it centers around a protagonist who perhaps by, you know, reasonable critical standards, isn't that great a writer? So I'm curious, how do you think Remedy sort of works around those confines of Alan Wake being a real a sort of pop author, this pulpy author who may not be all that great a writer, works with a lot of cliches with his work? How yes. do you think the game actually uses that to, to inform its its plot and the way that it works? Sure thing. Um, Alan Wake writer stands uh, come at me. But uh, I think there was a critique I remember reading of the very first Alan Wake. Um, one of the most devastating things I've ever seen anyone say about a game where uh, I remember the thing somebody said was Alan Wake was written by people who have read every Stephen King book except for On Writing, which is his book about how to write effectively, which I thought was an incredible burn, even though I really liked the first <laughs> Alan Wake. Um Ironically, Sam Lake recently appeared on the podcast, The King Cast, to talk about on writing, which I thought was a funny uh, sort of full circle moment. But uh, what I really like is that Alan Wake is sort of called out as a bad writer within the body of Alan Wake 2 fairly early on. But the character who does this is Alex Casey, who is the character played by Sam Lake, which means that he's a character who is sort of based on a character Alan has written, played by the person who actually wrote Alan, He's calling Alan a bad writer. It's just layers on layers, sort of this sort of Ouroboros effect. And I think as you go on through the story, without spoiling anything, so much of this game is about the process of writing a story like Alan Wake 2. And um, the writer just tying themselves in knots, thinking that they need to get this absolutely right, but they also need to stick to very specific genre conventions. And if they stray from that this story is not going to have the effect it is meant to have. It's not going to, I guess, in the larger metaphor, is please the fans, but in the specifics of his story, it's really about trying to escape from this dark place. Um, I really think they have played with Alan's pulpiness and maybe his any inferiority complex he might have about his own writing in a really interesting way, and I feel like it really informs the sort of sci-fi horror madness that is happening all over the game because most of the actual reference points in Alan Wake 2, I think, is less Stephen King. It's more David Lynch, who was definitely an influence on the first one, but I feel like the influence is a lot stronger here and probably a lot of European cinema that I'm not that familiar with. Um, as we go through, there's uh, a lot of things that feel very specific. Um, I think the best description I ever uh, heard of like Alan's writing is he's a really good airport author. And like, I think that the remedy definitely have, they've taken it a little bit less seriously in the sequel. Um, and I think that it's a lot clearer what they're trying to do with that archetype. James, people, people who know you will know that you've written and critiqued video games for quite some years, but in recent times you've, actually gone over to the game development side and worked in narrative design and, and writing for games as well, which I remember having a discussion with you about that your work on the game dev side has then further honed and informed your work as a critic to help you observe and notice things that perhaps you may not have previously. So I'd really like to get 
while we're talking about meta narratives and meta analyses to go even more meta and ask from from your experience on the other side that of game development what have you noticed or what did you notice while reviewing Alan Wake 2 that perhaps you may not have previously? It's a very interesting question. I feel like um, with a game like this, with this scope and the ambition that I see in the game, I find myself desperately wanting to know what tools they use, um, how they actually did this. Uh, is this all tracked somewhere on like a, a mirror board or have they done it all? Uh, have, did they use Odyssey on this project? Anything like that? Um, I'm very interested in hearing stories like that now, and I hope that Sam Lake has spoken about this a bit more explicitly somewhere. But I guess a thing that I really took away from this is just the the strength of the authorial voice. I feel like so often in game development, especially AAA game development, um, there is so much time spent trying to figure out like who your audience is and what you need to do to please them and, you know, how to sort of sand off some of the edges. And I feel like Alan Wake 2, to his credit, is all edges. It is such a, uh esoteric-specific game. As Fergus was saying, it really relies on a deep understanding, or maybe it doesn't rely on it, but if you have an understanding of Remedy's entire back catalogue, that really informs how you play the game. And I feel like, most publishers would tell you not to do that because it's uh, it can be quite off-putting, but they just had the faith and the confidence to really just make the exact game that they wanted to make. And I just think of all the hoops that you would usually have to jump through to get that done and to do it at this scale and frankly with the budget that they had, which is astronomical for a game like this. Uh, yeah, I was... Uh, I just find myself wondering how they got this done. And I kept thinking, you usually don't get to do this. And I think it's uh, very cool. Uh, yeah, the thing I just want to jump in on there is the budget. Like, it's crazy to think about having doing something this weird and experimental and like uh, requiring of such an investment in like context from players and somehow getting the money for that. Crazy in, in like today's e in modern sort of game development ecosystem. I've read online that like the budget was something like 70 million euros uh with like 50 million of that for development itself. Uh, and it's like supposed to be the most expensive cultural export that Finland has ever made, which is insane. Yeah. Wild. Crazy. And it's for a sequel to a game that did not do that well. Like <laughs> Alan Wake 2 eventually did make a profit, but it took years and it was it a much a long more time. budget game than this one. Uh, so, I mean, I applaud it. I think, uh, the key takeaway here, and we've learned this a few times over this year, I think, is uh, give interesting teams just the leeway to do what they want to do and you'll get something good out of it. Dare I say that perhaps that's yet another parallel that Alan Wake, or Alan Wake 2 rather, draws alongside its its inspiration of Twin Peaks in terms of the long gap between the original series run and then the very highly dissipated return of, well, the return. What What is it? that you believe is, is so effective about drawing upon this this TV series? Um, there's lots of stuff, right? I mean, there's like, to begin with, there's the surface level stuff, like the imagery and the tone, uh, the sort of North Pacific Northwest setting and that interest in like small town Americana and then digging underneath the surface a little bit and finding kind of the darkness under, underneath and that sort of weaving of the supernatural alongside sort of everyday life stuff. Uh, there's a section of the game that's quite memorable. You go to a coffee-themed 
like theme park. Uh, and it's this very like mundane thing, but it's given such a menace by like the supernatural tropes and trappings uh, of the story. Um, and then with regards to the return as well, I do think there's that willingness to absolutely swing for the fences in, in a very similar way to uh, David Lynch's The Return, where it's like absolutely impossible to imagine anyone actually, anyone who's not David Lynch going to pitch this and actually getting the money for it and getting the freedom and run and leeway to actually do it the way that they want to do it and having like the faith and trust that, no, this is a good idea. I know how to execute on it. It's going to be great. And actually doing the follow through. Um, so in that, it reminds me a lot of it. Uh, yeah. How about you, James? I also just, I think it has the confidence to not provide super clear answers to everything, which is mm. a, a common trap you can fall into a get in a game like this that is very abstract and based largely in metaphor is to like try to over explain things. And I really appreciated that this game didn't do it. I think a lot of the sort of, uh, iconography is obviously very recognizable, but whereas the first Alan Wake, I think, resembled Twin Peaks largely aesthetically, this one is far more in terms of the tone and the structure of the game's storytelling. Uh, I think is a lot closer to what Lynch and his team did with the most recent season. I think um, there's a lot of overlapping themes that I wouldn't dig into too much because they would be spoilers, but uh, the parallels, I would say are numerous but they're not as explicit as they were in the first game it's not so much oh this is an analog for this it's more i can see that these are operating off of the same dna so that then leads into sort of the the mixed media storytelling approach of alan wake 2 and i know fergus that's something that you touched on a fair bit with your review of of the game there's a lot of things going on here in terms of the the conventional gameplay loop that acts as a lot of the survival horror type of gameplay that we perhaps may have seen for to tap on a personal reference playing the resident evil 4 remake earlier in the year there are some similarities in terms of that overall gameplay loop but then there's the live action elements where some of the cut scenes or some of the overlays that occur during the game are from actual filmed footage of the actors playing their roles etc and then of course there's a lot of the the musical influence as well throughout the game as well in in various ways both diegetic and non-diegetic which is without going to spoilers is done delightfully well but what was it about the the mixed media approach to storytelling that worked for you, Fergus? It reminded me a lot of like going and seeing like a movie where someone's willing to use every tool in the toolbox, not just tr sort of really traditional shots and stuff, but using like weird camera angles or weird lenses or weird effects. And it's one of those things where it's really refreshing to see a game try and engage you in these different medium ways. And you can, you're can you getting like a little bit of story through the text, you're getting a little bit through the dialogue, you're getting a little bit through the cutscenes, you get a little bit through the interstitial sort of um live action -y elements that occur uh and it also is again as a long time remedy person it's really rewarding to watch them and see how they got to this point stretching back through all their games like oh they first started doing the monologue stuff with max Payne and alan wake but then they started doing live action with quantum break and then more live action with control and then they're sort of you can see the curve and evolution of that stuff as they're each time getting better and better and be more and more ambitious and I, they have definitely never made anything this ambitious before. Funnily enough, a thing it really reminded me of was the games of Sam Barlow, the sort of uh, FMV trilogy that he has done, uh, her storytelling lies in Immortality, especially Immortality, 
Um, just that sort of very innovative use of uh, real footage, which I guess goes back a long time in games, but it feels like with the level of fidelity you were able to get out of this footage now, but also the level of seriousness you were able to get out of performances and your actors, there's now this sort of um, this real sense of legitimacy, I suppose, to that sort of... It used to be like you would get live action in your game as sort of like a bit of a showcase for the cutscenes, but now like the way it's being integrated into gameplay and into storytelling and being cross cross cut with this uh, game, uh, the in-game footage, I just think is really interesting. And um, I'm really keen now that I've played a handful of really amazing games that are making use of real filmed footage to sort of see what the, uh, what the future holds for this sort of thing. If, anyone has played Alan Wake and Immortality and gone away and just uh, started to craft their own fantastic thing that they're currently filming. One question I've seen posed by a few people since Alan Wake 2's release is in terms of how far it leans into the horror, because the first Alan Wake had horror elements, but certainly felt more of an action game, whereas this one does lean much further into the survival horror and through a lot of these different techniques and, and the use of media throughout, it does a lot of things to unsettle and unnerve at every point. To, I'll, I'll be honest, I have a very low threshold for horror and I struggled a lot during points of this game, especially with a lot of the uh, the jump scare elements of of characters' faces flashing up on the screen, uh, accompanied by deep percussive sounds and and a lot of that stuff. And th- there were a couple of points where I very nearly noped out, but the the allure and draw of how good the game was overall kept me through where would you say this game sort of fits on the the horror spectrum um it's interesting right Uh, i love horror as a genre and i would totally agree that the first elm wake was like more action game that was kind of spooky versus actual like scary um horror i think it is uh it's interesting because i wouldn't say it is like as visceral as something like a resident evil or like an evil within necessarily in terms of gore and stuff like that but it, again, it's that willingness to use every tool in the toolbox to actually like hit you and, and like freak you out as a player. That I think is what give, makes it like way more effective at that stuff. Um, I love it. Like I'm I'm a sucker for survival horror. Uh, so it didn't really bother me, but I can definitely see, especially those jump scares uh, getting to some people. Yeah, I definitely um, agreed to review this game and then thought about it. thought, I'm actually not that good with horror. I don't know how I'm going to go with this, but I managed to get through. I feel like, there's a lot of games that I've played that I have noped out on in the past. And usually the thing that does me in is sort of a mechanical scarcity, I suppose. Um, like l- very limited save points, um, the possibility of becoming stranded with no ammo. Um, I don't like it if I'm playing a game and creatures like will randomly burst through walls and attack me, that sort of thing. I think um, Alan Wake 2 the normal difficulty level is relatively balanced where there were some points towards the end where I thought the balance is a bit off and I turned it down to easy, honestly, but um, for the most part, it didn't make me feel like there was any possibility of getting stuck or like, uh, you know, just that feeling of facing a really awful phase that there's no escaping from. I remember playing the original, the remake of resident evil on the GameCube. This sounds like a tangent, but I'm going to make a point with it. Um, there was a point in that game where I was locked away in a room. I just used my last save ribbon. I had a 
pistol left with like three bullets in it and the room outside was just full of monsters and I thought to myself well at this point Jill just puts a bullet in herself and the game is over like that's like that's how this game oh, no. for me now and I stepped away from it and uh, that's sort of a moment that has haunted me ever since because I came to realize actually Jill would fight her way out um, so that was me um, not being able to face up to the horror of the moment I suppose in the game but yes I think Alan Wake 2 is scary um, it definitely the jump scares got me but it never has that like sort of deep terror of feeling like you're drowning I suppose uh, I, I think I could always sort of get it together enough to face whatever was around the corner I think it's got a pretty good balance uh, where you know like the jump scares are never actually going to hurt you they're just sort of part of the thematic fun of the way the game is playing around yeah I would totally agree I think it's really well balanced uh, throughout its run like I I'm usually a person who loves Resident Evil games for about the first 60% and then by the time you hit the last 40% you're like this is just stupid like we've You've given me way too much ammo. This is like trivial now. Um, but I was really refreshed to find like with Alan Wake, they actually managed to hold that tension basically all the way to the end. Um, like they don't throw you an overwhelming number of enemies at you. It's always like a handful of enemies, but those enemies are deadly and tough and you have to think about and be smart about how you engage them. Uh, I also really enjoyed the weapon system in it, which rather than just giving me a bunch of like stat bars and be like, ooh, this upgrade will give it more damage. It's like, here's an interesting twist on the weapon you have and allowing you to sort of express and customize your weapons as you go in that way. I really like that stuff. I found the the combat throughout Alan Wake 2 to be rather interesting. I I did enjoy it for the most part, and and Fergus, I certainly agree that the the weapons felt varied and powerful and satisfying enough to use, but not in terms of being overpowered and, as, as you say, impacting that tension and removing the tension that the game works so hard to to build and sustain throughout its entire runtime. But one of the, the major issues I had was particularly with the, the Alan sections where he's in the dark place in this really twisted, shadowy version of New York City and there's all of these really wispy ghost apparitions all over the place. And one thing I've really struggled with was it's not super clear or not super well telegraphed, albeit towards the end of the game, you get a little bit better at picking up on this, but it's really difficult to tell which of these ghosts or shadows will actually manifest into enemies that will attack you and hurt you and you actually have to fight versus those that you just point your torch at and they disappear. Yeah, absolutely. I think it took me a very long time to realize as Alan that if I just sort of held my flashlight on a shape for long enough, if it wasn't going to turn into a threat, it would fade away. And if it was, it would start slowly shuffling towards me. And um, when I realized that, I thought that entering into encounters was always a sort of fun, creepy experience, sort of seeing a bunch of shadows and slowly figuring out which ones were going to attack me and sort of um, that fade away animation is so cool i really enjoyed it but i did find that once i was in the thick of things having a bunch of shadows and not really having any way to tell which ones were going to attack me and which ones weren't was kind of annoying and i found that a lot of the 
a lot of the sort of weapons you have to counteract this didn't feel as effective in this one as maybe they did in the first one. The flare gun is an exception. That was a, a great tool for situations like that. So there were a few specific fights in the game where I felt the balance was off and I felt like there wasn't a reasonable way through them. And um, a few times towards the end, I did turn the difficulty down just for a fight or two because um, I needed to get the game done and I need to review it. Uh, but that lead-in section to a fight where you have the flashlight and you can spend a bit of time figuring out which shadows are good, which ones are bad, I really enjoyed that. That's so interesting. Uh, I had like kind of the opposite reaction to it where I immediately the I felt like the message that the game was giving me was do not worry there are too many shadows do not waste your flashlight like trying to spot check every single one of them you will run out of battery this is not what we want you to do and so I kind of approached a more like scrappy run and gun sort of thing with Alan where where, where it was ever possible I could try and sprint past people uh, and then use the sprinting past people to draw out the hostile shadows uh, and then then practically in fights those non-hostile shadows were essentially cover for enemies coming for me when i tried to uh melt them with the flashlight so i found it's i just had a very different experience with it i think that's a similar approach to what i took later in the game once i sort of picked up on some of the tells a little bit better and when i was trying to power through some of the some of the sections that perhaps i wasn't dealing with as well from perhaps a a scare slash horror level so my coping mechanism was to sprint through and try and just rough and tumble my way through at um, any any possible moment. But yeah, it's it's interesting. It's yeah, you know, I, I felt like it, it wasn't bad by by any means, but I did feel that the, the combat did pale against the the rest of the the mechanisms that Remedy used with Alan Lake too. So I think it's clear that we we all unanimously love this game. But to to give you a chance to sort of put your concluding thoughts together, James. I'll start with you. Do you drop or rate Alan Wake 2 and why? I think that for me, this is definitely going to make my game of the year list um, in whatever form that ends up taking. I think partly is just the audacity of coming back to Alan Wake this many years later and just dropping a game this wild, this weird, this uh, sort of reliant on you having a deep love of the first one, I think is just a very cool thing to have done. I think we didn't really get into this, but visually this game is phenomenal. It looks absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the soundtrack is wonderful as well. I feel like it's just matured beyond the first game in a way that I find very interesting. It feels like Sam Lake spent a lot of time thinking about what would happen next to Alan and part of the idea of this game is that Alan has been trapped for 13 years just like trying to think of plots of how to escape from this dark place that he's trapped in and it feels like Sam Lake went through a similar journey and the team at Remedy has also been trapped for 13 years thinking about what they want to do with this character which is the same thing that happens in Twin Peaks season 3 by the way so it's uh you know, it's just this sort of circular meta. I think, you know, actually making that satisfying, making a game that is this meta that isn't just like completely up its own butt is a real achievement. And I think uh, 
what they've pulled off here is just very impressive. Fergus, the same question to you. Do you drop or rate Alan Wake 2 and why? I absolutely rate this game. Uh, I I think it'd be hard-pressed to not end up at the top of my game of the year list at this point. Um, it's absolutely amazing to watch Remedy uh, take everything they've learned over the past 20 years and absolutely just deploy it just to precision. It's fascinating to watch someone who isn't Capcom come in and take a solid swing at survival horror. Uh, and it's absolutely phenomenal, like, like as James was saying, to watch them come back to Alan Wake, a game which did not sell particularly well and was kind of a cult classic to some people 13 years ago and absolutely hit it out of the park. Um, I think it's so interesting as well if you read into like a lot of the reports around the development of the game where they sort of stopped and rebooted and started development multiple times over the course of that 13 years. And it's so interesting to think about the maturity in a lot of the design decisions in this game and think about like you you probably couldn't have made it to this level of quality if you had just gone and made the sequel two years after the first game. Like and a lot that extra time in the oven was well worth it. So that's Alan Wake 2 from Remedy Entertainment, an incredibly special follow-up that is an absolute meta textual analysis and, and narrative that follows and charts Remedy's history up to this point and absolutely throws a kitchen sink at it with everything they've learned up to this point. Join the Sifter community on Discord at sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. This has been Drop Rate by Sifter, our video game review podcast. Thanks to Brian Fairbanks from Salty Dog Sounds for composing the theme music. And Sifter is produced by me, Chris Button, Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang, and Adam Christou. Mitch Lowe is senior producer, and Gianni D. Giovanni is our executive producer. James, if people want to follow you and read more of your work, where can they do so? Uh, I am, against my better judgment, still on Twitter um, at Jikel, J-I-C-K-L-E. I'm also on Blue Sky, which is, uh, if you need an invite code, hit me up and I'll give you one um, for that. Uh, let's see, I also have, I've got a game probably coming out next year, but it's nd so I can't talk about it. I also have a book coming out, but I also can't talk about that. Um, yeah, just remember my name and when you see the things I've worked on, think, ah, oh, it's that guy. What about you, Fergus? Uh, I am absolutely uh, just reeling from the news that it's pronounced Jikel. I've spent the last 13 years pronouncing it jickle <laughs> everyone and has no worry about it this is, this is terrifying to learn uh you can find my work at reviews.org slash au um i write about tech games streaming all sorts of stuff i also pop up from time to time in other places like kotaku and games hub and then you can follow me on threads because i'm not on x anymore uh at cvamped oz which is c-v-a-m-p-e-d-o-z wonderful and that's all for this week. You can check out what Sifter is up to on socials. We're also all over the shop at Sifter HQ on whatever social media platforms are still existing by the time this goes out. And if you enjoyed this episode of Drop Rate, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing the episode on social media. And you can also head to sifter.com.au for written coverage too. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Hey there, Gianni here on the latest episode of Lightmap. Sifter's interview podcast, Trent Custers from Melbourne's League of Geeks, joins me to share the pretty candid story of how their studio almost came to its end. 
the thing that I said to Blake, who was the game director on Jump Light Odyssey, and, you know, we've got to remind ourselves is that it literally was just a logic puzzle. Like, we did not have enough money to take one team all the way through till, say, late 2024, which is when, which is the amount of time that Jump Light Odyssey needed to be completed. We've got to put this one game that's already out there that has a bunch of potential and then invested in this other game that, you know, very clearly, because we can see the wishlist doesn't have this, and it's always been the case, like Solid Inferno is the weirdo strategy game, right? It was never it was never the commercial front runner out of the two. You know, you don't get to pick and choose. It actually, the decision is made for you. You can get every episode of Lightmap for free on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, or head to our website, sifter.com.au. 